Well, this morning we are going to be reintroduced to our friend Peter. We've been missing him for a bit and now he's back. We're at the end of chapter 9 in the book of Acts and I want to start this morning with a, a summary statement in verse 31. So verse 31 connects us with Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 which formed the outline of the book. We've mentioned that many times. Um, Jesus said you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We've seen how Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria have been impacted with the gospel already. Acts chapter 9 verse 31 kind of explains how that's progressing. Verse 31 so the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace as it was being built up. And as it continued in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it kept increasing. So the first stage Judea is pretty much complete. The second stage Samaria is nearly so. So the apostles were quite active in the Holy Land following Jesus order of expansion the way he sets that out in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So now there are two words in verse 31 that are welcome but a little bit surprising. It says enjoyed peace. That's good news. The church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. So we know the church's story so far has been one of great suffering and persecution. And Peter and John were arrested they, a couple times. They were beaten. Uh, Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Saul of Tarsus was in on that particular killing and became a sort of grand inquisitor with the approval of the chief priests arresting, imprisoning, torturing and killing believers in Judea and then Saul even heading out with uh, letters from the chief priest to take that persecution to Damascus. But here we see the church at peace and growing. So what changed? Well for one thing the grand inquisitor switched sides. That was a big one. So Jesus laid hold of him, gave him a new heart and now he was an evangelist and an apostle and of course um, that put him on the target list as well and in chapter 9 verse 30 the church got him out of town you might remember from last time and out of reach of those who wanted him dead. They sent him back home to Tarsus. So that was one factor leading to peace. No one else seems to have had that absolute zealous dedication to destroying the Jesus movement that Saul had. Saul was really the energy of the oppression and that energy was now serving the gospel so um, that sort of settled down a little bit. But history also offers us something else by God's providence that may have been a factor in protecting the church. God does things like that sometimes. He arranges history to keep the gospel going. So the Lord is sort of drawing the attention of the Jewish leadership to other places. Right around the year AD 40 the uh, attention of the Jews in Judea turned increasingly to what we might call or what they may have called the Roman problem. They were after all under the boot of Rome and that was always a, a tenuous relationship. You've probably heard the name Caligula the Roman emperor that followed Tiberius. If you've ever seen the old movie The Robe uh, the actor that played Caligula kind of became an overnight sensation because people hadn't seen somebody quite that insane on the screen before <laughs> so he kind of made a big splash with that. But Caligula became the emperor in AD 37 right about the time Saul would have been sent off to Tarsus and Cal Caligula was a, a 
pretty crazy person. He was a total degenerate. Incomprehensibly evil actually. He had no moral whatsoever. So he was probably insane. And, but he did have the right lineage to become the emperor. So he became the emperor. So right around the time Saul is sent off. Uh, he becomes the emperor. And every time there's an emperor change. The Jews have to worry. Because they're never quite sure what their status is. Before the Roman government. In terms of keeping their own faith traditions. And things like that. So um, their attention would have been how is Caligula going to treat the Jews. Well pretty soon they find out. Their religious freedom depended on his goodwill, right? So in AD 40 Caligula who kind of got mad about something that happened with the Jews. Ordered Petronius who was the governor of Syria. And, and at this moment in time Syria was sort of the overseer of Judea. And that part of the Roman Empire. So um, he wanted Petronius to go down to Jerusalem with an army and place a statue of himself Caligula in the temple in the temple grounds so um, they so he would be worshipped as emperors should be he had kind of a god complex I don't think most of the emperors took that real seriously but um, he, he was a little crazy so anyway Petronius thought that was a horribly unwise idea and tried to stall him he wrote letters to him kind of had to go back and forth so that kind of put it off for a little while and it became a lengthy sort of issue for a year or more and everyone was focused on what that would mean because the Jews simply would not allow it. Many were willing to block the way physically for that statue to come to the temple. Other Jews threatened to take up arms and revolt if they tried to do that. So accounts differ about how that didn't end up happening. Um, some say that uh, Petronius's letters changed Caligula's mind. Other historians say that Agrippa who knew uh, Caligula and was close to the, the Roman emperor's families he he persuaded him to back off but the problem kind of solved itself uh, when Caligula was murdered by his own Praetorian guards in AD 41 January of AD 41 so for our purposes here the, the combination of Saul being gone and these other pressing matters really took attention off the church and it flourished under the apostolic ministry. Verse 31 says it was being built up which likely refers to both numerical and spiritual growth. And it says the church was going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I love those two phrases there. The fear of the Lord means they cared very much about what God thought about what they were doing. They were God centered. They respected his word and they sought to do his will. And the comfort of the spirit means that the fear of the Lord was not some kind of oppressive guilt laden religiosity. But a genuine faith uh, with love towards him and a desire to serve him in the world. So their hearts were at peace not in turmoil and they knew the comfort of the word of God. So the next big event is going to happen in chapter 10 and it's going to be very much centered around Peter. So Luke takes some time here at the end of chapter 9 to kind of reintroduce us to Peter and his ministry. Um, our minds have been off with other places if we're reading through the book of Acts with Philip and, and then this guy Saul who had such a dramatic conversion and what was happening with him. But Peter is really the main man in the first half of the book of Acts. So Luke gives us two events that happen really close to each other both in time and in proximity. Um, these events really demonstrate the power that apostles did have. And you can see how much of Christ's own power they could access uh, in certain areas. Especially the power to heal and to set people free from demonic oppression. 
They couldn't do all the miracles that Jesus did. They didn't change the weather or anything like that. But in those areas they had power that was very much like his. And that's really valuable because uh, for us it's valuable in our time because you know what? There's always people pretending to be apostles in every generation. Somebody thinks he's an apostle. And we can compare them with what scripture says about apostles and um, come to some good conclusions about that. You know if you want to be somebody in the church you give yourself big titles. But especially if you want to be really big you claim to be an apostle. And you see people like that on television and in certain church movements. So saying I'm an apostle would be a claim of a higher authority than the everyday run of the mill pastor or shepherd of the flock kind of person. Because you kind of have an in with God. You're at the highest possible level there. And that means you get more respect and you have more direct authority to boss other people around and tell them what to do. And you get a lot more money because hey you're an apostle. You're higher. You know you're worthy of that. So uh, of course people claim this and if anyone claims that in your world then avoid them. Avoid them. Why? Uh, Well you're going to hear me say it many times and you probably already have because it's so important not to be taken in by pretenders and charlatans and deluded people. So the office of the apostle was unique and it was foundational to the church. Ephesians 2.20 is really clear about that. Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You only lay a foundation once. After that what do you do? You build a building on it right? So the foundation was apostles and prophets. What did they have in common? They received divine revelation. Apostles and prophets. That's the foundation of the church. So the gift uh, of apostleship was to give divine revelation that cannot be questioned. It's a, it is the highest authority. And ultimately that would lead to our having the Bible which was written by apostles mostly or prophets. So in the Bible is God's final revelation. That's what we depend on now. We don't look to apostles and prophets to give us new doctrines. Apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. That's why Paul could be one and Luke who wrote this book could not be one. Luke would be classified as a prophet but not an apostle because he had not seen the risen Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 1 asks a question. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That's the very definition of one of the requirements for being an apostle. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The risen Christ. So an apostle had to have seen Jesus resurrected. Third apostles had unique gifts that came from Jesus himself. Um, Miraculous gifts like we saw in Acts chapter 8. And these gifts they could pass on to other people. So what are the gifts? Well in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 Paul tells us the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. So he says here they are. These are the signs of an apostle by signs and wonders and miracles. That's why we call them sign gifts sometimes. They, they pointed to men who were apostles. If you saw those kind of miracles happening it was either an apostle or somebody the apostles laid their hands on and you would say where did you get this power? I got it from Peter. I got it from John. That kind of a thing. So Peter had these signs in abundance and in him they are really comparable to a lot of the miracles of Jesus even. So um, 
they pointed to him as an apostle which was the highest authority in the church. No one today that claims to be an apostle can do anything like what we're going to see Peter do in our text today. They can't do anything like that. So that's one of the good measures actually. Are the signs of an apostle there? with people claiming to be an apostle. So Luke chooses two incidents because they they really reveal the genuine uh, powers of healing that are impossible to deny. Uh, They both happened to people that were known in their communities and they were particularly effective in drawing people to the gospel because they were so amazing. Um, The first event is introduced in Acts chapter 9 verse 32. It says now as Peter was traveling through all those regions he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. L-Y-D-D-A. First we see that Peter did a lot of traveling. It says that right there. He was not locked in at Jerusalem but he was well traveled throughout the Holy Land. Jesus trained him for this ministry. Remember they did that. They went throughout all of Israel two by two um, long before the resurrection of Christ. So he would have known the towns, Peter knew the people, and he would boldly go proclaiming the resurrected Jesus as the Messiah all over Israel. So in our first story here, he ends up at Lydda. It says he came down to the saints there. That means there were Christians there. There was a church there, an existing church. And Peter is going there to visit them, to encourage them, to preach the gospel, and to help them any way he can. Today, Lydda has reverted back to its Old Testament name, Lod. Uh, so the L and the D are sort of the key consonants there. And that's where Israel's primary airport is, the Ben-Gurion airport. It's right there. So um, it's on the coastal plain not far from the coast where Joppa is. We'll be getting there in a minute. So let's see what happened. Verse 33. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your own bed. Immediately get up. So think about that guy's condition a little bit. Bedridden for eight years paralyzed that's a long time so here's a fairly typical apostolic miracle of healing we we notice several things there's there's no big display here Um, apparently Aeneas lived in one of the Christian homes in Lydda maybe with his family we don't know we're not told that he was at some point introduced to Peter the great apostle and Peter on his own initiative in accordance with the gifts given to him declares the man healed in the name of Jesus Christ So Aeneas had been around Christians but notice he'd never been healed. All these years had gone by he hadn't been healed. It didn't seem to be anybody's expectation that God was going to give him a healing. No one was claiming it or speaking healing power out of their mouth over him or anything like that. There was no one locally in that church who could heal him. So this is a real miracle. It's an apostolic miracle. Peter's miracle and of course Peter reveals to all the true source of power when he says Jesus Christ heals you and the miracle was instantaneous and the miracle was complete. So this is a real miracle that uh, Aeneas wasn't feeling poorly you know he wasn't having a bad cold or something he was paralyzed for eight years. Now do you know what happens to people's muscles when they're paralyzed for eight years or bedridden for eight years? The muscles wither. They don't have any strength at all. Even if you were made well by a doctor, you would need to slowly build up strength over time. Muscles would have to be retrained. It would take months of special care. And 
But Peter just gives him this command, get up and make your bed. Instantly, he got up and did it. Instantly, the muscles grew to full strength and had coordination. No atrophy had set in or could be seen in this man. So you see here, this is a miracle of creative power really on the level performed by Jesus so often during his ministry on earth. So the result was very powerful. Verse 35, and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. People who knew Aeneas personally when they saw him well, they turned to Christ. It was a great day. It's quite amazing. Now not all miracles have that result, but it did on that day. The next event, which is not too far away, is even more amazing. And that will happen in Joppa. Joppa is about 10 miles away from Lydda. It's on the coast. You might remember that this is the city where the prophet Jonah hopped on a ship to escape God's call to preach to the Gentiles in Nineveh. So it makes kind of a nice contrast because Jonah went to Joppa to escape preaching to the Gentiles. God is bringing Peter to Joppa so that he can preach to the Gentiles and that's going to happen in chapter 10. But uh, first a miracle of just unparalleled greatness uh, is granted to the church there. Sometimes it happens that one of the most precious and valuable saints in, in a church is lost due to the ravages of disease and death. And we felt that in our own church. Church history, missions is full of occurrences like that. We've certainly had that in our own, in our own fellowship. And it's hard to understand why take this person now, you know. But these deaths from our point of view seem like they're untimely and unproductive for the kingdom. Of course God is much wiser than we are. But a, but a death like that happened to the church in Joppa. So verse 36 it says now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha which translated means Dorcas. That doesn't tell you much does it? This woman was excelling in acts of kindness and charity which she did habitually. But it happened at that time that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her body they laid it in an upstairs room. Since Lydda was near Joppa the disciples having heard that Peter was there sent two men to him urging him do not delay in coming to us. So Peter got ready and went with them the text says. So Tabitha or Dorcas has died. Her name means gazelle. Uh, So Dorcas is the Greek version of that. She was much loved and so Peter is sent for and now it what point in Tabitha's illness is Peter being sent for? When she's dead. She's dead. So, so far there haven't been any cases of the apostles raising the dead. Not that we know of. So these believers are exercising great faith in the power of the risen Christ to work through his apostles. Now they're not taking chances. They're not going to let her lay there for days. They're, they're rushing. You got to come now. Because uh, they think logically I think that um, there's a better opportunity for um, him to bring her back to life if he's quick about it. So, um, but they have a lot of faith that this can actually happen. So these believers are um, moved by faith in the power of Christ to work through Peter. So they might have heard about Aeneas being healed of being paralyzed uh, up the road. Uh, they knew Christ raised the dead and they knew Peter was a compassionate man. So it's not unreasonable for them to at least ask or have the hope that he might be able to do something. Also they say do not delay. They want him there quickly. Okay so let's talk about Tabitha a little bit. She's one of those totally committed saints. I mean big heart, ready hands, always doing for other people. 
We have some gazelles like that in our church actually. They are precious ladies indeed. And this description of Tabitha in verse 36 sounds a lot like the Proverbs 31 woman though we're not, she, we're not told she had a husband so she might have been single. But Proverbs 31:20 says uh, she extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. So that was Tabitha through and through. She was a Proverbs 31 type woman. A marvelous Christian woman. Abounding in deeds of kindness and charity. And they just felt like it wasn't her time to go. So they take the long shot and they they send for Peter to come. And he comes. And verse 39 is really very touching. It says when he arrived they brought him to the room upstairs. That's where she was. And all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. So the widows are there and these are the widows she made garments for. So the, you know, the average widow in the ancient world had it pretty hard. Uh, unless some adult child could take care of them. They were, you know, they didn't have a lot of work options and things like that. So somebody had to take care of them. If they had adult children they could go into their home. But um, they were generally very poor. So uh, she would make garments for them. Nice garments, beautiful things. And uh, to let them have a little bit of style and uh, beauty in their life. And just protection you know from the elements. So Tabitha's heart just went out to them in very practical ways. She made nice clothes for them. Clothes they had to show Peter so he could see what she had done. Look Peter look at this dress you know this garment you know. So they're all excited to, to share that with him. And they're crying. They're crying as they're showing him uh, what she had done. So Peter listens but at some point he, he follows uh, the example of Jesus uh, how he handled a situation very similar to this and he asked the ladies to all step outside just to leave him alone in the room there. So this idea of awakening the dead quietly and privately he learned that from Jesus when he raised up Jairus's daughter in Mark chapter 5. And so he asked them to step out and this idea of awakening the dead privately um, seems to be important. It's probably better for the person who's going to come back. So first he clears the room. So it's not a show. It's not the glory of Peter. He's not making a big deal out of it. He's going to awaken her in the least traumatizing way possible. Second, he prays. Peter isn't Jesus. And um, if he has never raised the dead before, I don't even know if he thought I just have the power to do this or he just needed to. He kneels and prays, we're told in verse 40. So.
He seeks the Lord on his knees. And then he calls to her. So in, you know in Mark chapter 5 when he raises the little girl. Um, the Greek text says uh, Talitha kumi. Talitha means little girl. And Tabitha sounds very much like that. It's just got one letter difference. But um, Tabitha is a proper name. Like I said it means gazelle. So Peter says word. He says it like this. Jesus said Talitha kumi. And Peter says Tabitha kumi. Arise. So verse 40 gives us the details there. She opens her eyes. She looks about. She sees Peter. And she sits up. Let me read that for you. So Peter sent them all out. And knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body. He said Tabitha arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter. She sat up. Then verse 41. And he gave her his hand. And raised her up. Calling the saints and the widows. He presented her alive. Ladies you may come back in now. Here she is. Can you imagine that scene? The, uh, the joy and the hugs and the tears and the praise to God. So you know Tabitha was dead and laid out and scrubbed and prepared for burial. And now she's alive. It's just a great miracle. The result verse 42 it became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. There's nothing better than a result like that. Then verse 43 closes out the chapter. Peter stayed in Joppa many days with a tanner named Simon. Now that's kind of interesting. Why mention Simon's job? They don't usually tell you what people's jobs are. Well he's a tanner and because of his work with dead animal flesh he's always ritually unclean in the eyes of the Jewish law. So you don't stay with a tanner because you become ritually unclean with that. Unless you might start to stay with him if something is starting to change inside of you. And uh, it says Peter stayed with him many days. So that sort of puts a thought in the Jewish reader's head like hmm. So let's kind of summarize where we've been here. Luke has reintroduced us to Peter and these two stories. We are to remember that God is using him mightily. We are to remember his leadership in the early church. And Luke does this for us because something wonderful is about to happen in chapter 10. And Peter will be at the very center of it. And this wonderful thing will be the greatest event in church history after Pentecost. It's fair to say that another Pentecost with much wider ramifications is what's coming in chapter 10. And that will lead to another event of great significance in chapter 15 after which Peter drops out of the story of the book of Acts altogether. But these things we we looked at today Luke tells us because we need to remember that Peter had a faithful and profound ministry especially among the Jewish people. But next time chapter 10 Get ready for a world changing event. Let's pray. Our great father you work marvelously in this world. You bless, you heal, you save sinners like us. You put your stamp on the apostles words with miracles done by their hands. So even today we can trust their word that we find in the scriptures. Thank you for telling Peter's story and letting us see your compassion Thank you for Tabitha's example as a, of a godly, giving, unselfish Christian. Those who are most missed in the world are the most giving people. 
And we see that clearly and we hope to glorify you as she did. And we ask you to let us learn from this. Move forward joyfully in our faith with peace in our hearts and a readiness to do your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, we'll see you next time.